I am Neka Otokwala, and this is Edu Catalyst Africa. On this podcast, I will be having conversations with some of the most brilliant minds in and outside of Africa. We will be exploring the triumphs, challenges, and solutions within the educational landscape of the continent. We aim to spotlight transformative solutions that can stimulate Africa's development through top-notch, equitable, and inclusive education. In advocating for indigenous knowledge and pedagogies, it's also about representation. When the learner is able to see themselves and their experiences in curriculum, in textbooks, they are able to connect more to what they learn. That is Kenneth Jamira. Kenneth Jamira, a certified K-12 educator and researcher, holds a Bachelor of Education from the University of Education, Winneba, Ghana and the Master's in Education Policy and International Development from the University of Bristol, UK. As a chief named scholar, he has earned accolades in educational leadership and research. With a diverse background in K-12 and higher education, Kenneth is currently a PhD candidate at Queen's University in Canada, specializing in curriculum and policy studies. His research focuses on curriculum and policy studies, STEM education, decolonizing education, and the role of African indigenous ways of knowing. Kenneth has published works on social justice, equity in education, international and comparative education, assessment, and teacher education. He serves as a research coordinator at the Toronto District School Board, and is a member at large of the Comparative and International Education Society of Canada. My conversation with Kenneth, up next on Catalyst Africa. Wow, Kenneth, your bio is <laughs> brimming with a wealth of valuable experience. And I am so excited to learn from you as we discuss such an important topic today. And I'm certain our audience shares the same enthusiasm. So welcome again, Kenneth. Thank you very much, Neka. It's such a pleasure being invited to this podcast to share my experiences. Awesome. Uh, one thing I didn't already mention to you previously, and this is because it is so special to us at Educatalyst Africa, and we wanted to get it on record, <laughs> is that you are our first guest, and this is our very first episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's really, really, really great. I'm really excited to um, be the first guest on the Educatalyst podcast and <laughs> I hope that this grows to become bigger and better. Thank you. And we just want to say thank you immensely for starting this journey with us. We won't forget it for sure. So let's jump right into the order of the day. So tell me, before we dive into the topic of the day, which is a core piece of your PhD research, we would like to hear from you a bit about, you know, your background and journey into this field of education, especially your transition from being a teacher to pursuing a PhD. Could you give us a short, you know, insight into that? 
Yes, sure. So I started off as a teacher in Ghana after high school. I feel like teaching has been more of a calling. And when I was in high school, I would support my colleagues in explaining some of the concepts, some of the topics that we were learning. And then it was through my classmates who were like, Kenneth, you are very good when it comes to explaining some of these topics that we learn. And have you really considered being a teacher? Because sometimes you explain things better for us, Mm. even how we learn in class. So I was like, oh, really? And at that time, I felt so many colleagues of mine would come to me and we would study together and I would take the initiative to explain some of the topics. And so after high school, um, I thought, yeah, teaching naturally comes to me. So I may want to explore teacher education. And I am someone who has been influenced or impacted by my teachers. I grew up in a rural community in Ghana, Adansia Tobiase. And those times, teachers were not accepting posting to come there to teach because it was a rural community. Um, mm. You know, so the few teachers who took up that bold decision of accepting um, posting to come to my community also saw that, yes, it's not like a small community without talent and gift. They saw that students in the school, we were really, really interested in learning. And so I got that kind of mentorship and support from my teachers who were mostly young teachers. Mm. And that really left a very big impact an impression on me. So when I reflected on like my journey from the rural community, um, going through high school at the time, I was among the first in the community to go beyond junior high school to the senior high school. And mm. so I was like, maybe this could be a way of inspiring the next generation, especially those in low income communities to also believe in themselves. Mm. So, I decided to pick up a form to the University of Education, Winneba, to become a teacher. And I haven't regretted taking that decision since. So that was in 2010. I enrolled in a Bachelor of Education degree program and I completed in 2014. Afterwards, I did one year um, national service. I know in other countries like Nigeria, they call it national youth service. Service. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So in Ghana too, we have that. You have to work oh, for a teacher. And I worked as a teacher. So my teachables are mathematics and science. So when I was posted as a national service person, I taught a math in um, a junior high school, which is from grade seven to grade nine. Mm. And I enjoyed that experience and I, I could feel the impact that I made on these students. And even till now, they reach out to me. Some of them have even um, completed universities, you know. So afterwards, I moved to another community. I actually accepted a posting to a very rural community. It was one of the new secondary schools that the government had built. Very um, rural, even um, going there was a challenge. But I thought, yes, um, I have always wanted to give back to community. So I accepted the posting there in 2016 and I worked as a science teacher there. And when I was working there, I found that the students needed motivation because of where they are coming from. Sometimes when you don't take care, your environment will define who you become. 
So I took it upon myself to introduce different initiatives, um, introducing them to the Queen's Commonwealth Essay Competition, because at the time I was also involved in education advocacy. I was a Global Youth Ambassador of Education for the award. I was also one of the young leaders who were championing education globally, and the Global Partnership for Education had featured me on some of their blogs. And through this kind of global exposure and experiences, I found the need to also support my community and the school that I taught in. So I introduced this mm. to a lot of different concepts. It was a rural school, very new, no science laboratory, being the only science teacher teaching wow. across five programs. And um, teachers were not accepting posting there. And internet issues were all challenging, but I did not let that define what could happen for the future of these um, young people. And so mm -hmm. I was able to even um, have collaboration with Google. They came there to train them on the guitar skills. I also had a collaboration with Vodafone Ghana. I did a lot of initiatives there that really inspired these students. Mm -hmm. But whilst on that, I decided to pursue further studies because I had seen the role of education policy makers in making systems better for learners. Mm. It was that time that I decided to pursue a master's degree in education policy. And luckily for me, I got to know about Chevening Scholarship, which is a UK government scholarship. And I applied and luckily I was among the first teachers in Ghana to ever mm. receive that prestigious scholarship. So I, I went to Bristol um, in 2018, September to pursue my master's in education policy and international development. And then afterwards, I developed interest in indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous pedagogies because I saw how as a teacher back in the rural community, I was integrating um, local ways of knowing into the lessons. And I must say that I was the only science teacher in the school. It was the first school. So the first batch completed in 2019, a year after I had left. And in science, my students scored 99% in the West wow. African School Certificate Exam. So That's then amazing. they didn't know that the methodologies and the pedagogies that I was um, incorporating in my teaching really um, stood out for these students. So that was um, when I started exploring PhD opportunities. And luckily for me, I got into Queen's University in um, September 2020 to start my PhD. So that has been the journey. I've been working mm. as a teacher and I've also been working as more of the bridge, like a youth advocate in education, being part of some of the young people around 2014, 2018, who really contributed to shaping global education policy advocacy. Wow. That is amazing, Kenneth. I mean, the three things I kind of picked out from all that you have said, which is just mind blowing. And that's the fact that you are a product of a rural community and one that have done such a great job in, you know, opening your horizon the way it's been opened right now. You seemed like you had great teachers in your rural community. And I think that's something that we also want to celebrate on this show. Uh, I know you called the name of your high school, if you can say it one more time, because I think, you know, schools need this encouragement. 
Okay, so I studied for so for the primary and the junior high school. Mm-hmm. It was at Tobias Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Then when I went to secondary school at Obuase Senior High Technical School. Okay. So, um, well, shout out to those schools because they've done a great job. <laughs> and I think another thing I picked from it is just your passion for what you do for, for teaching. It's always very refreshing when you hear teachers who really enjoy what they do and put students at the center of what they do. So it's really refreshing for us to hear this. Could you tell us what your research is about? So my research explores or examines the role of African indigenous knowledge systems and African indigenous pedagogies in transforming and reimagining STEM education in Ghana. But um, the specific focus of STEM is math and science learning in the primary or what in other contexts they call elementary school. Mm. And that kind of defines what we're going to be talking about today, because our topic is as related to your math, your STEM focus. And of course, please tell us when the principles you speak about can translate beyond STEM and math, because I think that would be useful as well. So what do you mean by indigenous knowledge? Could you define that because I think definitions are important and I think I've seen different definitions. So it would be good to know what we mean when we say indigenous knowledge. Okay. So when we talk about indigenous knowledge, they are knowledges. They are not even knowledge because they are produced or they come from different contexts. So they are knowledges. And in terms of definition, it's very difficult to define indigenous knowledges because we see it differently. And when we attempt to define indigenous knowledge, we may end up not doing justice, justice to it. Justice to it. Okay. So, but then my working definition of indigenous knowledges is that they are ways of knowing and being that are situated within communities and they come through different forms and shapes. They are knowledges that have been passed on to generations since time immemorial and they are not mere local or traditional knowledges, but then they contain scientific systems, they contain technologies, innovations, arts, craft, symbolisms, and cultural ways of knowing. The thing about indigenous knowledges is that they are situated within the language of a people, the culture of the people, and their ways of um, doing things. And these knowledges have shown their transformative potential of addressing challenges. You know, it can be ecological, it can be biological, it could be um, human relations like conflict, how to address those things, bringing peace. So it cuts across different systems, but um, they are known for their authenticity as they are driven and developed within communities and also by communities. The difference between indigenous knowledges and other knowledges is that there is no claim to, like, I have ownership of it. It is for community. And it is also passed on 
from generation to generation. Another thing about indigenous knowledges is that they are place and land specific because some indigenous um, knowledges within, let's say, the Ashanti people of Ghana, their culture would be similar to the one in Igbo in Nigeria, but then there are differences because the land defines those knowledges. You know, mm. so there's this idea mm. of land as a teacher, land as that kind of space that all these knowledges emerge from. That is why when you live in a certain part of Ghana, you are likely going to learn a certain language and you are also likely going to be skilled in certain practices. For instance, in Ghana, there is an indigenous knowledge in a place called Bongre, and those people are known very much as skilled in weaving our kente cloth. So that indigenous knowledge is specific to that place. You could also go to the northern part of Ghana where you could see the um, curation or development of Sha butter. It's known there because it's specific to that people. It is very broad, but then when we bring it into education or teaching and learning, you could look at it from knowledges that are context-specific, knowledges that emerge from the communities and they are passed on through several forms. It could be through arts, it could be through drum language, it could be through stories, it could be through games and all of that, you know? So that is wow. my working definition of indigenous knowledge. Hmm. I can see how hard it is to actually box it in a definition, but thanks for trying to demystify it. Let's stay on that a little bit more because I would like to visualize what it looks like being incorporated into curriculum. What does that look like? Could you give us some practical examples so that we can visualize all you've just said now in a curriculum context? Okay. So when you look at a curriculum, the curriculum in itself is broad. The curriculum also encompasses norms, beliefs, values, and other experiences of learners within school. So even the space in which we study, the arrangement of classrooms and all of that is part of the curriculum. And we have the implicit and the explicit curriculum. The implicit, like I said, are the things that we hardly don't see, but those are the things that influence the direction of education. It could be a policy instrument. It could be values. It could be beliefs. It could be assumptions. It could be even pedagogical direction. But then we also look at the explicit, which mostly we see it through content knowledge. So when you look at indigenous knowledge systems, like I said, they are broad systems in its own, and they have proved over centuries that they are useful to reimagine education. So when you look at the curriculum, for instance, let me use math as an example. Um, there are several topics that students learn. Let's take, for example, teaching of fraction in math. In teaching fraction, one thing that our curriculum in Ghana and most African countries promotes is that it tends to promote a very Eurocentric understanding of knowledge, Eurocentric knowledge systems that are sometimes or even more often removed from the lived experiences, the relevant previous knowledges of the student and even their 
communal experiences from what they learn in school. So in teaching fraction, you look at the Ghanaian elementary school curriculum and you see that the curriculum says, use an example of dividing pizza to explain fraction to students. I saw this a lot in my work because I did critical content analysis. Yes, pizza may be common recently, but then when we look at the larger population of Ghanaian students, not all learners may be exposed to things like pizza. But then you could use other examples, local context-driven examples. For instance, there are several games that we play in Ghana. One of them is called Chempe. We divide in things. It can be fruit. It can be food. It can be just anything. Dividing them equally. It is a game that is very known in Ghana that many kids already play. Those games have mathematical connections or they help students to understand this concept of sharing, mostly that fraction may talk about. But then these are missing. So it's in this case, mathematics as like a subject, for instance, is presented to the learner in a very abstract sense or it is presented from a very Eurocentric lens while teachers and even students, the examples that they are asked to follow are not even aware of. So there are different ways, like even stories that we tell or we share that have these kind of mathematical connections in them. So how do you look into our indigenous knowledges framework and see some of these connections? You could teach learners about counting. There are a lot of games that learners play, not only games, there are stories, there are activities that they do even at home I call this maternal pedagogies. Our mothers, most of the time in Africa, in Ghana, I grew up with a mother who was a trader. So I started learning addition, subtraction, and all these things from my mother, not from the former education context, how we do it, but from even this process of like trading and following my mother to the market and all of that. So these mathematical knowledges are not foreign or alien to indigenous communities. They know it, they do it, but in a different way. So how do you look into these ways of knowing and being and make that kind of connection for the students to grasp the content instead of always saturating our curriculum with non-Ghanaian or non-indigenous specific activities and examples? Mm. You know, oh. so you could see even in math, in my work, there's a lot of connections through indigenous games that we play. Like we have this game of Ludu. I know in Ghana, Nigeria, Senegal, a lot of Africans play this, even those of yeah, us. Yeah, we do have it. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've been playing this for a long time. Have we really looked at it as a mathematical tool from that indigenous sense of us? our people creating this idea of games? It can teach you a lot of things like counting, probability, addition, subtraction, strategy. These are skills, core skills that curriculum frameworks define that students should know, but then they are always framed from a very Eurocentric understanding. Meanwhile, these things are not foreign to what we do. We in Ghana, for instance, in my work, I also look at patterns in teaching math. You could look at some of our cloth that we wear in Nigeria. They call it Ankara. Uh -huh. in, or it can take, when uh -huh. you look at the design, the knowledge 
that our people and most of these people who create these, these artisans have not accessed our formal education, but you could see the mathematical abilities that they deployed in creating these patterns. So I have used this idea of patterns that come from African fabric to even teach patterns, symmetry, and all these things in Ontario um, schools. And the students were wowed about it. So, you know, this idea of indigenous knowledge is not just, oh, let's only focus on our local ways of knowing and all of that. It is also advantageous to even non-indigenous people because these patterns we see, most of the things around us that have been developed centuries communicate mathematical and scientific and even societal, like any other areas, not only math and science, but there are so many entry points into introducing our students to some of these scientific and mathematical concepts, instead of always focusing on Eurocentric interpretation. Not to say that the other ways of knowing from a more Western orientation is wrong. The idea is to look at a more eclectic understanding so that you don't develop learners to be linear in thinking, but then you are developing them holistically. And mm -hmm. one, of, and there are a lot of theories, there are a lot of studies that have proven that when you center the experiences, the ways of knowing, and the culture of the learner in whatever they learn, there is improved success in education. You know, so the pushing of these indigenous knowledge systems into curriculum can work in different ways. And my work has proven because through my guidance, teachers who participated in my study have created two pedagogical tools on how they could integrate different forms of indigenous knowledges and pedagogies in teaching math and science at the elementary school without removing what is there, but bringing it as also an alternative way of knowing being mm. I'm actually very fascinated because I feel like this is sort of an eye-opening experience for students at a very young age, helping them build love for science and math because it's really what they're used to in their everyday life. Seems like a stepping stone for them to reinvent, evolve and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you said even about love because one thing that I have found in my work is how indigenous knowledges and pedagogies helps promote joy in learning math and science. Because mm. like this is my experience as a teacher serving as an empirical evidence. You know, when you meet 10 Ghanaian primary, junior high and senior high students and you ask them, what is your favorite subject? I can tell you for a fact that you may get maybe only two of them. Yeah, there's a stigma like that. Yeah. <laughs> Science and math being always the hated subjects. Yes. yes. Because they don't find joy in learning this subject. They don't see it practicality. And we have forgotten that we do science and math every day. But how do you make those connections for the learner to know? Oh, like when we talk about diffusion, when mama is cooking at home and the aroma is going through and we can all smell it, it is also in a way trying to explain this concept of diffusion. You know, we have local um, wine tapers in communities who create alcohol. In Ghana, we have this alcoholic beverage called Akweteshi. It's very popular. I know in other 
African countries, they also have similar things. They follow the process of distillation and evaporation. When you go to their site, they create all these things. These are also examples that we could bring. So in advocating for indigenous knowledge and pedagogies, it's also about representation. When the learner is able to see themselves and their experiences in curriculum, in textbooks, they are able to connect more to what they learn. And because we have not done so much work on how to make this kind of representation happen for our learners through the curriculum, through teaching, through also textbooks and the syllabi. What is happening is that many students feel math and science is not for me. It's too difficult. So you hear these things. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you've experienced firsthand the benefits of this sort of teaching, this sort of curriculum. And I wondered in your research, did you find data to back these findings of how valuable indigenous curriculum is? Because I think that would be very important in persuading stakeholders and policymakers, because it sounds like it's going to be a curriculum overhaul, essentially. And I like how you defined curriculum when we started and how you talked about the implicit and explicit part of curriculum, which I never thought about. And so that means that it's even a bigger project to get a community government to embark on. And so do you have data of these great things you've talked about? Or is it just from your experience so far? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. There are a lot of data. The thing is, because of the misconceptions people have about indigenous knowledge, because they think indigenous knowledges are anti-development, they are fetish. Because they don't really know much about them, they tend to make it, ah, it is just something cultural, and you know. But South Africa has proven to be one of the countries globally that has an indigenous knowledge curriculum framework like centering indigenous knowledge in teaching and mm -hmm. uh, they actually have a curriculum currently i think started um, i may not be sure but since 2012 they've been having that um, there are a lot of scholarly works on the value of indigenous knowledges in transforming education like broadly and also even when we want to look at it from the STEM background because this is an area that in most African countries we are trailing when it comes to STEM. So South Africa is a perfect example. There mm. are studies, Marin Sihawa has done work, um, Kiani, there's a lot of scholars in South Africa. If we really want to look at Africa, mm. in indigenous scholarship, the practicality of it, how South Africa they were able to transform their educational system, centering their indigenous knowledge systems and pedagogies. There are several theses and publications that have alluded to the fact that when you center indigenous knowledge systems into the curriculum or when you integrate them into the curriculum, it has a lot of benefits to learners. And one thing that sometimes we, we even forget is the indigenous languages. Because in my work, for instance, I saw that teachers said even teaching math in the indigenous or the Ghanaian languages improves student engagement in the classroom. It also brings joy. It makes activities more fun. And not just that, students are able to show maximum proficiency in all levels. And not my work only. There has actually been a 
a thesis that was done in 2021 by a scholar from the University of Alberta, who is also from Ghana. They focus on how indigenous symbols in Ghana, how they have math in them and how they could be used to teach math. And then this scholar also found that when the teachers started using Ghanaian Cree language to explain this math concept to the learners, they were able to achieve beyond curriculum expectation. And there are a lot of even theories from the Western context that talks about the importance of language. But then in Ghana, the indigenous languages are seen as vernacular. And you mm. enter a typical Ghanaian public or private school, and the first thing you see is that speak English. The mm -hmm. idea is that English is okay. We all are able to communicate today with English, but there's this so-called English language imperialism that mm. tends to assume that you could only measure um, learning outcome through um, English language. So as a result, we equate English language proficiency to education quality. Research has actually shown that when the learner is taught in their own language first, they are able to do better. And in Finland, they do that. In Norway, they do that. In many countries around the world that are doing very well in PISA tests, even in Asia, you could see that they are constantly on top 10 in global education systems rankings because of the model of education they have. But in Africa, when you mention this, oh, local language, people even look <laughs> down on mother tongue, you know? So... Mm. The languages are also part of the indigenous knowledge. That's why I say it's a whole system and framework. And mm. the indigenous knowledges are carried by the language, which I call epistemic container, container of knowledges. So if you don't also look at how you could integrate teaching using the local language side by side with English, what you are doing is that most of the students may be treated as you are not good enough, but then they may be good. Right. Wow. No, so all these things are part of it. Yeah, but there are a lot of studies out there. But key challenge has been teacher misconceptions about mm. this, you know, so they may not, and also teacher knowledge and understanding of how to integrate them authentically into curriculum content. Wow, fascinating. And I do hear that South Africa is championing this cause already. And so I wondered, are there other countries outside Africa that has successfully implemented this module? Okay, I would say New Zealand, Maori, mm. M-A-O-R-I people, they're mm. also doing a lot of educational reforms and transformations and they are also centering indigenous knowledges in the educational system in a very rigorous way. Um, Australia is also another one. Indigenous knowledges are being centered in the teaching and learning and education system. Canada is also doing that currently. It is still ongoing. For example, where I work, the Toronto District School Board, we have the Urban Indigenous Education Center, which is run by indigenous people from this land, and they are doing fantastic work Apart from that, when we look at some of the Latin or the South American countries, they are also really doing some important indigenous 
um, work and even scholarships out there. And you look at um, UN document, like the UNDRIP, Universal Declaration, you could see that there has been a need to center indigenous knowledges into education. And Canada currently has the Truth Reconciliation Calls to Action, which one of the calls or mandate is indigenizing education. And it's not just now. Some of these work started in the 1970s when you look at education policies around indigenous education. You could see that there were meetings about indigenous education around the 1970s. Some happened in Canada, for instance. And there has been a lot of work done by indigenous scholars too. I want to also amplify the work of many indigenous scholars who are in Africa, who are in Europe, who are in North America, who are in South America, who are also in the Caribbean doing mm. this amazing work. You know, there are best practices and examples out there. And I would encourage anyone interested in this scholarship to look up for it mm. because it's really exciting. Yeah. Wow. Great. You know, as you talked about going back to the language point that you made, it also raises a few other questions in my head. And that is, what would this model look like in a multicultural setting, like in Ghana or even Nigeria, where I'm from, where people have different cultures, people come from different places with different languages. And I will give you an example. In Nigeria, I went to Federal Government Girls College, Onicha. Shout out to my girls. And it's one of many Unity schools in Nigeria. And Unity School is an attempt by the government to bring unity to a very diverse multicultural country. So you would have students from different parts of Nigeria converge in a unity school. And so we're learning from each other. We are making friends from different parts of the country. And it's such a rich and reaching experience. And then I wonder, how do you make this indigenous model work in that context, knowing that people are from different parts with different cultures, different languages, just different reality, if you will? Yeah, I think most of the time these questions come up when we talk about integrating indigenous languages, especially in Africa, where we know we are very diverse. But one thing that we forget first is uh, how were we able to be successful with English? It wasn't our language. That should be the first question because it comes across that if we don't use English, there can't be any way of teaching. One thing that I look at as a researcher, especially as agency, when you look at what countries like Nigeria, for instance, have been able to do, they used the colonial language, which is English, and they integrated different Nigerian languages to create the Nigerian pidgin to the extent that even now BBC has a whole platform dedicated for pidgin. That is also a language created by our people. It shows that we are dynamic people. It shows that we can produce new knowledge. We could even consider the Pidgin language as an indigenous language because it is known to that specific context. The Nigerian Pidgin they speak there is similar to the one we speak in Ghana, but not 
the same. And my colleagues here, when I, we go out, we speak pidgin and we understand each other. And so the idea is not actually about replacing what we already have built. Anyone who tells you you have to do away with English language instruction in Anglophone Africa or French language instruction in Francophone Africa may not know what they are saying. And we don't even have resources in these local or indigenous languages. But what you could do is that you look at a policy direction because some countries are doing it like you go to Canada where they've started doing this and they are not doing it at scale. You could start because policies need time and they take time. But one thing is that, yes, students come from different parts of the country where you went to school, for instance. But then among you students, there are some of them that are also multilingual. They can speak the different indigenous languages there. So if a teacher wants to do this, and I use that and it, it worked, where I was um, sent to teach at the high school I talked about, it was in the Volta region of Ghana, and the language they speak is Eve. That's not my mother tongue. I cannot speak it. I stayed there for three years. But in my classroom, there were students from my culture, which is Ashanti, who could speak the tree. And there were some students there too who could speak the tree and the Ewe and understand English. So in explaining some concepts, I did more of code switching. And then I say the thing in English. This is what it means. And then I also make an attempt to say it in Cree, which is the local um, language which I can speak. And there was this student who would translate it into Ewe. And there will be a lot of aha moment. Ah, teachers can do it that way. But mm -hmm. this would require a lot of work because currently my work has even shown that there are limited resources because all our textbooks, everything is in English. Notwithstanding, there are several countries that have also found success in this. I think Ghana is an example where we have the local language. You use it to teach in grade one, grade two, and grade three. And then when the kids move to grade four, you switch to English. Oh, that's happening in Ghana already. It's happening in Ghana. It's been happening over years. We could all learn from that. Although some teachers abuse it or they may not use it well, that is how I was taught. I never knew any English until I moved to like grade six. But today mm -hmm. I can speak English because there are a lot of studies also in language that has also found that when the learner starts learning in their local language, they are even able to do well in English in later years. Mm. I see it as what some indigenous scholars in Canada, they call it two-eyed seeing. We have two eyes. Use one eye for the English education or what they may call the Western education. Use the other one for the African or the indigenous education. So the idea is that we can actually do this side by side in a more careful way in which you are also helping students to develop holistically. Because unfortunately, in Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Senegal, there are many kids, even parents, who are not teaching their kids their local language because they don't even know the importance of that. Because when a child is multilingual or bilingual, there has been research that also shows that they do well at school. So I believe that this can be done 
with the correct policy measures in place. Like I said, Ghana has it. Other countries also have it happening across Africa. The thing is that we need to find a point of convergence because the argument that, oh, we are all coming from different backgrounds, even in countries that are highly diverse, you could find specific languages that are very known. You go to East Africa, Swahili. Yes, there are other indigenous languages, but then there's a possibility that most of the students may even know a bit of that just because it may be popular. In Ghana, it's three. So the idea is that you build it small by small. But what is happening in Ghana now is that we have 16 regions in Nigeria. They may call it states. In other mm -hmm. parts of um, Africa, they may call it province or whatever. But in Ghana, when you are in Ashanti region, the known language there is Ashanti, which is the tree. So all schools in Ashanti region have it compulsory that from KG to grade nine, all students learn the Ashanti tree as a course or as a subject. And also, it is mandated that in the primary or the elementary grade one to three, you use that to teach because there's this idea that all the kids there are likely to speak the language. You go to Accra, greater Accra, you could also see that the local language there is the Gan, which is the indigenous people of Accra. In most of the public schools, they teach Gan, but because Accra is cosmopolitan, we could look at it as Nairobi, Lagos, Abuja, Port Harcourt, Johannesburg, and all these bigger African um, cities, they are cosmopolitan. So what they do is that in some schools in Accra, it's not only Ga that they teach. They teach Ashanti tree. They teach other uh, languages based on the community, like the people mm -hmm. who come to the school. So this can be doable, just that we don't really want to take the bold step in looking at this because our policy actors have not seen the benefit of this. And I could direct you to some works by UNESCO, by UNICEF, by the World Bank Education, all these international organizations who are not even like Africans have seen that most of their intervention programs that they do, when they center it on the local language, there is this quick recovery of learning for most of the kids, especially those in crisis-affected contexts. There's a lot of work on this, mm. you know? So I think I it's actually interesting that Ghana has done a lot of work in this area. I feel like that's definitely a data point in pushing for this model across different countries in Africa. And I don't know if Ghana is in the works with trying to think about how to extend this approach beyond, I think you said, grade three. And I don't know if they approached it just from the language angle or if it embodies all the things you've said about indigenous learning for the periods that they do what they do in grade one to grade three? Yeah, um, I think I would give them credit that they've been able to provide a point of departure for this kind of work. Mm. But I feel like for us to really address this, and this is what the literature is saying, you really need to look at school community engagement because most of the pushbacks or resistance to 
local language integration in schools across Africa is parents. You know, mm-hmm. because parents have this misconception that when my child comes back from school and they are able to speak English, they are intelligent. So a lot of actors are taking advantage of this. While students can speak English, it's just a language. It doesn't show intelligence. We can all learn language. They only focus on language. And then you ask these kids to write about themselves in that language that they speak, and they can't. So parents resist language integration in schools, and we really need to do a lot of public education, especially with the language scholars who have actually found the role of the indigenous language or mother tongue in promoting education quality and learning outcome, especially for Africans and other, not even in Africa, but in North America, in South America, even in Europe. If Finland continues to be the leading country in PISA test, for instance, I'm not a big fan of this, but it serves as a data point. I would say, what is the model they are using? They are centering their language. They are centering the experiences of the learners. Their assessment frameworks come from a very defined context, and they can still compete globally and top using global systems. So I think one thing that we may want to do across Africa is stakeholder engagement. Mm. You know, yeah. And I think it just shows how big the effort is. (laughs) And I wondered, like, have you thought about what the implementation would look like? Who should lead the effort? What is the role of the government or policymaker and down to the parents, to the children? And have you thought about how if a government says, well, Kenneth, I think I buy into your model, your idea. How do I roll this out in my country? How would you advise? I would advise, I feel sometimes when we look at education, we only look at what happens in the former context, like our classrooms and our institutions. But there are bulk wisdom and knowledge in community that we don't take advantage of. I feel that if we really want to do authentic indigenization of education, one thing that we may want to look at is the role of African elders in shaping that. Our generation, we are missing out on this indigenous wisdom because of different factors, which I could I could cite a lot, like westernization and all of this. It's okay for all these things to happen because our world is dynamic, even culture is dynamic, but I feel we need to find a way to integrate African elders into our educational system and educational policy formations, because most of the time when countries, I'll use Ghana as an example, my major critique has been that the same people who have been leading education policies since the 80s are the same people they call on. But for us to do indigenous education, we really need to tap into the wisdom of elders. Even how do we see them as knowledge holders? knowledge creators, how do we bring them into classrooms to teach certain topics which they have much wisdom about? And there's a lot of work by Professor George Day, who is a Ghanaian leading scholar in Canada when it comes to indigenous education, decolonizing education and all of this. He's one of the global leaders in that. He talks about rethinking African educational system and the role of African elders. That is one We really need funding to be able to do this work. We don't even have curriculum resources in these indigenous ways of knowing. Those 
countries need to also start shaping or transforming teacher education because that also came up in my work because all the teachers that I spoke to during my data collection told me that in teacher education, they don't learn anything about indigenous education or even things around culturally responsive ways of teaching. You know, we assume that these things are not important, but the world is changing. Like you even said, in a typical Nigerian classroom is cultural diversity. How do you engage all these things? It needs to also begin with transforming teacher education because teacher training is very important and also professional development. Professional development in many African countries have been once off them, but it should be ongoing in Tanzania. People like um, Julius Nyerere started education for self-reliance. It was an indigenized education. It was working at the time. In Ghana, when we gained independence, Nkrumah also started that, you know, centering our experiences and our knowledges in teaching and learning. But with mm. time, we just left it. So I believe this involves like multi-stakeholder because we really need a system thinking and system approach in doing this. But then the research shows that it is doable. It could even begin at the local classroom level where mm. teachers start to take these basic steps. Like what the people I work with who are teachers in Guinean um, primary schools, they co-created a pedagogical model choosing each topics in math and science and how they could integrate their own indigenous knowledges in teaching that whilst also using what the curriculum spells out. So I believe that if we want to do this, we as a people need to come together and see where we could tap the resources from. We really also need to fund our universities and teacher education institutions to kind of start doing work on this because yeah. it was so sad that when I was writing my thesis, I found most of the work in South Africa. I did not find most of the work in West Africa. In West Africa, there are a few, some scholars in Nigeria, some scholars in Ghana. Even that's not enough, looking at the various colleges of education that we have across Africa. And there are also a few African scholars like myself, Imagine, who are doing this work from the Western um, context, which is not much. We really need to fund research into this area because mm -hmm. why are we still at where we are is a question for tomorrow. But then when we look at models and systems that are working, we could see that there's this kind of um, prioritizing their ways of knowing. You could look at the model in Japan. You could look at the model in China and other countries. You could see their education system is locally driven or it is more context specific. And there's a lot of work. I'm curious to know what your experience with educators and teachers on ground is like. Do you think they are happy to embrace this approach or do you feel like they think that it's a lot more work and I feel like having to do all of this without a policy change is even going to be more challenging, right? But what do you think? Do you think teachers are happy to take on this approach or, or not? Speaking about my research, I use a more qualitative approach 
because it's more of the starting point. No work has been done on this. So I looked at two contests. One thing that I found is that teachers have strong positive beliefs about these indigenous knowledges and their integration. And some of them even questioned the educational system and talked about how it tends to focus on foreign, everything foreign, like I'm using their lingo, everything foreign, rather than looking at the local context. So teachers have already identified it. And I must give credit because teachers are actually making effort in mm. issues around translanguaging, code switching, in integrating more local examples. Teachers are doing that. But because it has not been given a national impetus, mm. it's difficult to do it. But I think teachers that I worked with were very positive about it. Mm. They created two pedagogical guides on how to do this. So I believe if we give it a policy importance, I think teachers will be willing to do that. But I do believe that there needs to be more professional development because the teacher right. educational institutions are currently zero on things around culturally responsive and, and, and yeah and on that i wondered for a teacher listening to this who is very much enthusiastic about carrying out this style of teaching are there resources that you can share for those teachers to go and read up on or have access to encourage them to do all of these things that you've said in a context where the policy hasn't changed? Mm -hmm. I would say, yes, there are a lot of um, work on indigenous education in Africa. There's a work actually by this African feminist scholar. I may get the name wrong. Mm. Adding me, Ezienya Esiobu. Ah, she's Nigerian. Yeah. She, okay. She, yeah. she has a book on this. And then there are other works, like I said, in South Africa, Vita, um, Nedu and Vita. So most of them are scholarly work. There are videos on how, especially in South Africa, how science teachers, they use different indigenous knowledges within the South African context to teach science and how they brought in the communities into the classrooms and all of that. So this is a guide to follow, but the teachers themselves need to reflect on this is what the curriculum is telling me. What alternative idea or a pedagogical approach can I incorporate into teaching this? You know, right. And I think the name of the Nigerian professor you talked about is Chika. Esiobu. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think to kind of bring this all together, where do you see the future of indigenous education, particularly in terms of research and implementation? I think the future is brighter for countries who would take advantage of this because these are also in. UN frameworks. We look at the UN for a, a lot of these global policies and all of these because it's also a body of all member states. And there's an acknowledgement of that in most of their documents. So it shows that we really need to do this if we really want to make education more culturally responsive and also more 
self-reliant. But then it is not an easy task because you really need to also confront the legacies of colonialism. If you really want to do this, you really need to look at how the curriculum is not just a mere document, but the curriculum has so much power. And many teachers across the world see the curriculum as the law, so they must follow it religiously. But at the end of the day, our ability to shape policies around curriculum and pedagogies and integrate these indigenous knowledge systems is not only beneficial for indigenous people, it is also beneficial for non-indigenous people because they also get to learn from the other perspective. We really need to move away from the linear conceptions of what is considered legitimate or valid knowledge. We need to look at what some scholars talk about as creating ecologies of knowledges, creating multiversal or pluriversal ways of knowing. That is a way in which you could make education more holistic. Education that is spirit-centered, emotionally centered, that is physically centered, and also intellectually centered, making use of the mind, the body, the spirit, and the soul in teaching and learning. That is how we transform education because the purpose of education goes beyond just going through school. We really mm. need to also look at what Dewey talks about, education for societal reconstruction. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Kenneth. This indeed is an enlightening session for me, and I hope for the audience that will listen to this. You've given us a lot of food for thought to chew on, and I hope that it will start sensitizing people, moving the needle, and hopefully will get us where we need to be to start changing the fate of our continent. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing. We are mo much more informed and enriched by this podcast and we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Neka, for the opportunity to join you today to talk about Indigenous education and my research. I'm wishing you all the best. Such a pleasure being um, the first um, guest. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kenneth. And we're wishing you all the best in your endeavors. Before we wrap up this inaugural episode, I want to take a moment to express my deepest gratitude to the team of amazing people that made this all come together, which includes my family and friends. As they say, it takes a village. And so I want to thank my dear friends and family, Tiani Majoko, Ebelechuku Monye, Ngozi Aboti, Lindy Ntongana, and my dearest Gamilok Otokwala. Also a big thank you to my technical crew, Selchuk of Switch and Board Studios in Washington, DC, Ogochuku Obachuku, AKA Benzi Wahala, who produced the soundtrack and the episode. My Fiverr crew, Maj Aksa, my social media manager, Olivia Annabelle and Amara Pitch, who worked on the research and scripting. Thank you, thank you, and thank you.